0: Hey gang, this is Aaron here. I just wanted to pop in before the episode to give a warning. This episode does contain several discussions about sexual assault. Uh, That shouldn't be a surprise if you've seen either of the films we're discussing, but I just wanted to give people a heads up in case you're going in blind, and if that's something that's going to bother you. I don't think we get too graphic or in-depth, but it is part of both films, and so it was impossible to not discuss. And if it does bother you, that's fine. Uh, You may want to pass on this episode but if you do join us, I hope you find the discussions enlightening. I had a great time recording with Jessica, and I think we went to some interesting places dissecting both of these films. So either way, uh, listen or maybe join us again next week, but enjoy the show. everybody. Welcome back. A new week, a new guest host body, a new guest host body is here. And without further ado, I, I, I'm really excited to get into it. My guest host body today is Jessica Scott, a writer whose words have appeared in Daily Grindhouse, Ghouls Magazine, and Nightmarish Conjurings. Jessica, how are you doing today?
1: I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. How are you doing?
0: Oh, I, I'm doing pretty good now. Like about an hour ago, an hour before we were recording, I suddenly got the worst headache I've had in a very long time and oh no. I was really worried I was like oh no I can't cancel this I don't I want to do go through the show but I was worried it was going to interrupt a recording but then I, I drank a bunch of water our food arrived and I ate and I just felt better so I'm not sure what it was maybe I was just neglecting myself and I was dehydrated and hungry <laughs> but I'm feeling good now I, I'm, good, I'm excited good. to talk about the movies with you
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. I am too
0: So speaking of that, we've got the note in front of us. We've got our note with our theme and our theme this week was pretty wide open one. We're going to be discussing film noir, a fairly nebulous genre (laughs) that, that we don't really do much anymore. Although I guess neo-noir, which we'll be talking about too, is, is, it it still makes appearances pretty regularly. So uh, I guess we'll just take a quick break. If that's cool with you, we'll, um, play the trailer for our first movie and when we come back we will be talking about it i know what you're going to hand me even before you open your mouths you're going to tell me you don't believe my story and give me that don't make me laugh expression on your smug faces Look, I'll tell you what, you stay put out there, I'll come to you. Let's get married right away. How far are you gone? L.A. Not many people stop for a guy these days. Afraid of a stick-up, maybe.
1: This buggy belongs to a guy named Haskell. That's not you, mister.
0: Now, wait a Shut minute. Up.
1: You're a cheap crook and you killed him.
0: So what else was there to do but hide the body and get away in the car? Your eyes are your kisses Even if you did tell the cops I was in on it with you. What could they do to me?
1: I can't believe that you're in love
0: with me. Are you Charles Haskell, Jr.? Yes. There was no time to lose. Every minute I had to be Charles Haskell was dangerous. Hey, you, this your car? By that time, I'd done just what the police would say I did, even if I didn't. Maybe it's a good thing you met me. You'd have got yourself caught sure. Whichever way you turn, fate sticks out a foot to trip you. tells the story of sad sack pianist al as he hitchhikes from new york to los angeles to reunite with his girlfriend at first luck seems to be on his side as he's picked up by a gregarious bookie who himself is headed to la but when the bookie haskell dies accidentally al hides his body afraid that he'll be blamed for the murder and assumes haskell's identity it isn't long before he picks up another hitchhiker vera A wild and angry woman who knows Al is not who he's pretending to be, and that is Detour. Like uh, this plot is fairly bare bones. This is kind of a a noir film that is really straight to the point. For a movie called Detour, there is not a lot of (laughs) detouring in the (laughs) movie itself. It is it it is so completely kind of bare bones and exactly what it's trying to be. This is a movie that is now canonized as a classic. Uh, I think people know this movie as kind of an odd outsider classic um, for a lot of different reasons. It's also a movie that's very well known for being cheap and a little bit ramshackle, a little bit slapdash in its production and how it looks. But um, anyway, let's, let's get into Detour. This was your pick this week. I've seen it a few times. Why don't you start us off? Just what are your feelings? Why did you pick this as your noir film?
1: Uh, well, first of all, it's I'm a huge film noir fan, and this is my absolute favorite noir film. I f- Part of that is for the reasons that you've already mentioned that uh, to me. Um, the fact that it's bare bones, it just means it's lean. I like noir films that are lean and grimy and mean and nasty. I, I like them as dark and bleak as possible. And I don't think you can get much more bleak and nasty than Detour in a lot of ways. This is far and away my favorite noir film, even though I, there are many that I love in the genre. Um, I saw this for the first time <laughs> Oh, I was maybe 15 or 16. I was a very, very cool kid and spent most of my weekends watching TCM movies (laughs) instead of going out and doing things. So I caught this on TCM late one night and just fell in love with it. It was so depressing, which seems like an odd thing to enjoy about a movie, but (laughs) it just, there's such a a nihilism and such a bleakness to it that I really connected with that I really enjoy in movies. And obviously I'm, we will get into this in a moment, I'm sure, but Anne Savage's performance just completely blew me away. I've been obsessed with her ever since I thought saw this movie over 20 years ago, but yeah, She's there's fantastic. just, she is, it's, it's a phenomenal performance. Um, But yeah, there's just something about the charm of the low budget aesthetic and kind of the the craftiness of it. I, I really admire films that take a very small amount of money and do an amazing amount of storytelling with it. Not that I don't appreciate films with huge budgets that, you know, accomplish a lot with, you know, huge effects or huge set pieces or anything like that. But I really like films that do a lot with a little. And this one is just, there's such a a grimy, mean-spirited charm to this movie. The first time I saw it, I completely took Robert's narration at face value. I took it as a man who is manipulated and played with by fate at every turn. He cannot catch a break. It's the ultimate noir story of life is out to get you no matter who you are. Life will kick you when you're down and then keep on kicking you. It wasn't until I Revisited the film later on and read some criticism of it, that I realized that it might perhaps be foolish to take Roberts at his word. A lot of what he's saying doesn't doesn't hold up scrutiny, and we never hear anybody's side of the story except his. And I go back and forth on how I feel about his narration, and I think that is to Tom Neal's credit because he gives such a hangdog performance, and he seems so downtrodden that you believe that all of these horrible things have happened to him through no fault of his own. But once you start to kind of pull things apart, uh, they don't stand up to common sense. And that's not a criticism of the script. That's a, a, a strength of the script that when you really think about it, none of these things taken altogether make any sense. It makes more sense that this is a man who has lied and cheated and stolen and murdered his way across the country and tried to convince the, you know, unseen audience of his own innocence perhaps he's just trying to convince himself of his own innocence but to me that's the beauty of detour if you take his story at face value it's the ultimate noir story of fate just screwing with an innocent man over and over again if you take his story as one that's full of lies and rationalizations and manipulations meant to make him look like a good person, it's still the ultimate noir story because it's a bad person getting away with bad things and leaving wreckage in his path all across the country. I it's just, it's perfect to me, you know, despite some of the the faults or the mistakes or some of the, as I think the shabbiness that you mentioned, I, I really think this is a perfect movie.
0: It's great. And there's a lot in there that you said that I really want to touch on. But first, talking about Al or Tom Neal, uh, who plays Al as an unreliable narrator, I do not believe a single thing that he says in this. <laughs> <laughs> because he, he's speaking directly to the audience, basically. Like he's not looking at the camera, but he's kind of staring off and like mm-hmm. he's not talking to anybody else. This is his internal monologue as he tells everything. I I believe he's framing everything in the story to make it as flattering to him as possible. Mm -hmm. And you know, when we see the, some of the, the video evidence, if you will, what's going on in the scene, it doesn't quite jibe with his description from the very first time we see him. uh, Well, you, you think, you, you think about like that idea that people make their own fate that fortune favors an optimist, if you will, that, you know, people who, Approach things with a more optimistic attitude. Will will have a better chance of suce- success, if you will. He's got this very loving girlfriend who wants to stay with him. She wants to move to L.A. and he's like, "Why would you want to do that? You'll just get eaten up and spit out in L.A." You know he hates everything that's happening around him, even when it's good, when it, it has the chance <laughs> to be good. He's just like, "It'll never work out." And so he kind of just like he he kind of I mean I don't want to victim blame if, if, if with this statement, but he kind of calls upon himself a lot of the horrible things that happen around him through his inability to ever like recognize a good thing and, and just kind of assume the worst about everything. Mm -hmm. Um, The first quote unquote, well, I'm going to call it a murder, even though in the film it is presented as an accident when Haskell dies.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And it's never quite clear how he dies, but the the implication there is that he had a heart attack while he was asleep because he's, he's popping those pills that look like they might be heart medicine. Al opens the passenger side door and Haskell's body drops out and he hits his head on a rock, which is why Al thinks that he'll be blamed. He'll be blamed for bashing him over the head with a rock. And so he hides the body. And then he just kind of like, his narration kind of just like walks through. He's like, well, I mean, I couldn't have people not thinking I was Haskell. So I had to take his clothes and Oh, yeah. Hey, he just happens to have like 700 and something dollars in his pocket. (laughs) Like he he has an excuse for everything, but it gets to a point where it's like, well, that's a lot of coincidence. That's a lot of excuses. I don't I don't buy any of it. I I do not.
1: (laughs) Yeah. You you can only suspend your disbelief so far. No, I'm with you 100 percent. I think. In the light of day, I don't believe anything he says, but I love how much Tom Neal sells it because he makes you want to believe him. But you're right. I I enjoy how hazy the the, um, depiction of Haskell's death is, because if someone were telling the truth, it wouldn't be quite so hazy because it does seem like he's trying to say well he died of a heart attack and then he hit his head on a rock so he had two accidental deaths in one and i didn't do either one of them when probably the reality is he stopped on the side of the road and bashed his head in with a rock is probably what really happened but i enjoy how hazy that is and yet he is remarkably clear-headed And forward thinking for someone who just had this horrible thing happen to him because he's like, you know, well, no one would believe that a rich man would be wearing my shabby clothes. So I'm going to exchange clothes with this corpse. And he goes through it very methodically as if he had been planning it the entire trip, you know, running through the steps in, in his mind of what he would have to do in order to pull off taking this man's identity and stealing all his belongings And I actually made a note of that when he finally, he hides Haskell's body, steals his clothes, steals his car, gets to a hotel. He decides that he has to learn everything about the man in order to pretend to be him. And he says, the first thing that I found out was that I had $768. And to me, that's the key to the whole film. His first thought immediately was how much money he had. Like that helps you if you had any doubts about, you know, the veracity of what was going on. Uh, That would clue you in that he didn't really feel this guilt that he said he was feeling. He really just wanted to know exactly how many dollars and cents the man had on him at the time. And honestly, looking back at my teenage self and realizing how uh, trusting I was (laughs) of the narrator, I don't know if I just wasn't sophisticated enough in my film watching or if it was just I was taken in. By Roberts's character, the way he's hoping people will be taken in, but I I do get a bit embarrassed thinking that I didn't realize that he was an an unreliable narrator at the time. But I think that is a testament to how well they sell him trying to sell the audience on his innocence. Like, oh woe is me! Look at all these horrible things that keep happening to me. That somehow I run off scot-free with a lot of money in my pocket, with dead bodies in my wake. Aren't you? Don't you feel sorry for me yet?
0: I didn't write down this quote, but it's coming to mind a lot now. Uh, And I think it might've actually been from Ebert's review of this movie. He says in a crime picture, the criminals know they're bad. Like you think of James Cagney, right? And he Mm -hmm. he revels in being a bad guy in his gangster pictures. The difference between crime and noir is that in a noir film, the criminal thinks they're the good guy. And Mm -hmm. in this movie, he's really trying to prove to himself, to us, that he is the good guy and it was just fate messing with him. Mm -hmm. And I think it's kind of clear the more you watch it and the more you kind of like get into this movie that that that's not quite the truth and whether or not he intended to kill any of the people he kills, it certainly isn't as cut and dry. Like, Oh, it poor me as he wants us to believe.
1: Another thing that I love about detour um, is Roberts uh, goes so far to paint the other people in the story as the bad guys that it becomes laughable. Like Haskell he claims was running a a swindle on his own father by pretending to be a Bible salesman. Like he's going so far out of his way to be like, well these were actually the bad guys here. I'm a good guy um and you've got, you know, this m- man pretending to, you know, conning his own father by pretending to be a Bible salesman and Vera is just the most the fiercest most frightening femme fatale in noir history like he makes her out to be just completely feral and terrifying again trying to make himself look better in comparison um so you wonder what the real Haskell and the real Vera were like um even though I I wouldn't trade anything in the world for seeing Anne Savage's performances, Vera. But when you think about what actually happened versus what Roberts is telling you what happened, it becomes almost comical if it weren't so grim and depressing how much he's going out of his way to try to pretend that these were just completely irredeemable people who had nothing but faults and were just the world's better off without them, basically, is what he's trying to argue. So even if he did kill them, it wasn't such a bad thing after all is kind of what he's trying to do with this narration that he's giving the audience.
0: Well, that is completely true. But I have to admit, watching it this time, it it's all down to Anne Savage, who, like, what a great last name for her. Right? This, character. <laughs> uh, this character is unlikable. Like, she's not even likable on the surface. And once you get to know her, she's devious. She is exactly what she appears to be and like you, you like yeah kind of feral like she is like a, a wild animal that he has picked up on the side of the road and their, their first scenes when he's talking to her in the car and she just shuts down everything he says and like yells at him and then goes on and it's like 10 lines of rapid fire dialogue yelled at him it's mm. hilarious in <laughs> a way it it's such a great performance there's such a, a kind of a hunger in her eyes too and it, it is to her performance that as unlikable as she is on the page and what she's doing and how she's represented and how we're seeing her through Al's eyes. I kind of still understand that character. She is making that character somebody who has been kind of attacked by the world and hungry for some control over it. Right? Like Mm -hmm. we hear about her before we meet her because Haskell picked her up at one point and is like telling Al about it because he's got these scratches on his hand. And he said like, well, you expect these, a, a woman that you pick up is going to be nice to you. And that's like kind of like another clue too, because Haskell is, is doing that thing where he's telling you a person, a story to be like, check out how this, how crazy this other person was. But as you're listening <laughs> to it, you're going like, no, I think you were the crazy person. Exactly. Because it's, it's clear he got a little too comfortable. Um, maybe he even tried to assault her. Uh, mm-hmm. On the road because he felt he was owed something for picking her up, mm-hmm. and she scratched him and like got got out of at one point. So he's another character who is kind of like trying to paint himself in a flattering light about something that happened when it's clear he was uh, it, it, the real the truth is not going to be flattering to him. Mm-hmm. But that that is a backdrop for Ann Savage's performance and Vera's character that this is how she's treated by everybody that she meets as well. And, and she just kind of like, well, by the end of it, it's kind of a bit of a, of class warfare. Like she wants to swindle the old man that's dying as well. She's like, she's trying to paint them together as like you, you and me, both, whatever you think of me, we're, we're both on the lower rungs of society here. If we do this, we can finally breathe and be comfortable. And that's kind of all she wants. And there is something sympathetic. In that that shines through because of her performance, the awfulness of the character.
1: Exactly. Yeah, I've I've always loved Vera, but the most recent rewatch, I felt myself sympathizing with her even more than I have in the past. Um, just because there are so many layers to that performance. It's not just her being quote unquote a bitch the entire time. That's not what a femme fatale is, you know. She has so much pain and there's so much history and trauma, like every single line has this venom behind it but you can tell it comes from a place of real inner turmoil like she says something about you know the cops are no friends of mine and you can tell that she's been mistreated by the police you can tell like you said i think it's pretty clear that haskell at least tried to sexually assault her and you know she's had to fight him off and i'm certain that's not the first time she's had to fight off a man like that especially being a woman alone on the road like you said the class warfare aspect she tries to team up with Roberts. she she kind of enjoys torturing at first of torturing him at first but she kind of starts to see him as kind of a comrade he's i think she says we both come from the same gutter and she wants to you know split the proceeds of haskell's inheritance that she wants Roberts to take advantage of between the two of them she wants to fight back against the system that roberts is kind of bemoaning in his narration that the world's out to get you and especially if you weren't born you know rich and privileged Um, and she's trying to fight back against that system so she makes herself or he makes her sympathetic despite himself Um, so i totally get what you're saying i i've never i've never considered roberts to be sympathetic but i just think he does such a good job of trying to convince people that he's the underdog here that you almost want to believe it. But yeah, I, every single time I watch it, I think I sympathize with Vera more and more because there's just so much going on under the surface. She's so lonely. Like she, when she's in the hotel room with Roberts, she has moments where she acts like she wants love from him or she wants sex from him. And speaking of, I, I, I'm always astonished every time I watch this movie at how quickly her performance can turn on a dime. She can go from really vulnerable but manipulative at the same time to just being, you know, a raging force of nature. And she can just turn on sexual chemistry like that. Like, there's one moment. Um, Where there's an innuendo that I embarrassingly had not picked up on before, um, where there's a a pullout bed in the living room. Vera's going to take the bedroom because she's got, you know, Roberts under her thumb and she gets all the comforts in the hotel suite they got or the apartment rather. And there's a pullout bed and she says, you know how to work it? And he says, I invented it. And there's more sexual tension in that two second exchange (laughs) than in most full run movies. And it's just I just the different emotions she can convey and the different I I think she could have chemistry with a block of wood. I'm not calling Tom Neal a block of wood, but like I feel like she could generate that charge with anything or anyone just because of her performance. It's just it's really astonishing.
0: Yeah, no, she does. She does kind of like switch on a dime and it's always believable from her. Uh, Certainly when I saw this movie the first time when I was younger, um, I watched it on TCM as well. I don't remember thinking that Al was lying about everything. I certainly thought like, oh man, that, like, I, I kind of just thought, thought of him as a little bit of a weakling. Weakling is not the right word, but just kind of a, a guy who is just accepting of horrible things happening to him. Like if he had had more agency or more, if he had acted more in his own self-interest, he would have avoided almost everything bad that happens in this movie. But <laughs> that that's how I, I viewed it. And I only, probably viewed vera as what she's presented as as a monster to him and then you know on re- rewatches i'm like no no that he's he's like there's more here i don't know how much of her portrayal i'm supposed to believe it, especially the fact that they don't have sex in this movie at least not in his memory and i'm trying to th- or the way he's presenting it and i'm kind of like well it doesn't make sense that he in his position he would turn her down nor that he could never leave the apartment like why doesn't he ever leave and it's like oh she locked the door I'm like well but she's downing an entire bottle of alcohol (laughs) and passing out every night he can't get those keys and he has a line where he says like my favorite game is being uh what what is how is it he just he he basically says that he just like loves it when he's being controlled and so I think he's trying to make it seem like he couldn't do anything but stay there but I think in the reality of things he is enjoying Vera he he is getting something out of this and he's kind of trying to paint it as like oh woe is me.
1: Right. Yeah, I I agree. I I think in his recollection, because his whole point from going to New York to California is to find Sue, his girlfriend, whom he is supposedly meeting to get married to. But again, this is all from his recollection. So it might not be the the case. Um, So in his retelling, he's trying to keep himself quote unquote pure for her. He's trying not to cheat on her, which is why he in the version of events that he presents to us, Vera throws herself at him repeatedly and he turns her down every time. But I agree completely. I don't think for a second that what really happened is that he turned her down. Um, I I don't think for a second that he spurned her advances like that.
0: Well, it's also interesting because he calls Sue a couple of times. Mm -hmm. And the first time he is talking a lot It is the most ridiculously one-sided conversation. He's like, what's that a train? No, I'm going to like, he, he doesn't ever give her a chance to reply. Like we only see him in the phone booth talking and he is really weird. And you can kind of like say like, Oh, that's what this movie is doing, but it, it doesn't seem natural. And the only shot we get of Sue is at the end of the conversation, she's just sitting in a chair with the phone in her hands and she puts it down. And it's like, well, how much of that conversation actually happened? Like did she okay. actually say anything back to him or is he just like projecting everything? And the other co- time he calls her later on, he he kind of hangs up before he can talk to her. He gets scared that he'll get found out because uh, Vera is in the next room. Mm-hmm. And that's another one where, where she says hello and then hangs up the phone. And it's like, well, what is their relationship? Is she actually hoping that he shows up? It, maybe she's moved on or maybe like, maybe she doesn't even know that he's there. I, I, I'm not sure. Like, I, I guess we, we can only look at what's presented in the movie. It, it, it doesn't, it, at a certain point, it gets useless to conjecture about what's real and what isn't, but it, it's hard to take anything in this movie at face value, especially after you've seen it a couple of times.
1: Exactly. Like you couldn't see me, but I was gesticulating wildly while you were talking about his first phone call with her <laughs> um, because I wrote a, a very a very terrible essay on this movie (laughs) that has not that justifiably has not seen the light of day but (laughs) one of the things i mentioned was that phone call that you know you can write off a certain amount of that to perhaps the film style at the time it's like what's that just say he's been in the bank for five hours and you can't get him you know like where somebody responds to something that's clearly not happening but it goes further than that Like he's speaking very rapidly. He's talking a lot. He's pretending to take in a lot of information that he could not physically be hearing from Sue on the other end in the amount of time that he's having this conversation. Um, So that I think that's an early inkling that this, like you said, things are not as they seem. He is not being truthful. Um, And again, you never see or hear her speak. You just see her smiling on the other end for half a second. Um, So I, I think that's a key early scene that pushes things just a little too far, makes them just a little too unreliable, slightly nightmarish in that, you know, he's rushing through this story about what supposedly happened on the telephone, but really didn't. So I just, I just wanted to echo that because I got very excited that you mentioned that (laughs) (laughs) because.
0: Well, yeah, plus there's, there is a, um, we've kind of danced around a little bit. The, the cheapness or we've mentioned the cheapness of this movie and a lot's been made about that and we'll, we we'll, we can go into it more but a lot of it boils down to the worst rear projection you're likely to see <laughs> when they're driving <laughs> uh the fact that the film has been clearly flipped so that we're seeing the mirror image of what's supposed to be happening because al keeps getting in on the wrong side of the the car like the the driver is on the right hand side of the car yeah that always confused me <laughs> which, which i think i heard an explanation and it makes sense to me that he did that because he filmed everything a certain way uh, uh Ulmer, that is edgar g Ulmer, filmed everything a certain way and then in editing they realized like oh he's going from right to left in the movie from east to west coast we should flip it so it the film grammar makes sense of which way ah. the cars are going hmm that kind of makes sense. But also, there is a certain point where the, for lack of a better word, cheapness of it becomes kind of a, an artistic tool on its own where it starts to just make the film not feel completely real. Like things are a little too empty, the the sets are a little too shabby. It it is consciously fake at times. Mm-hmm. There's like one scene on a New York streets that is full of an insane amount of fog and during their conversation the camera keeps cutting for a couple of seconds to the same riverside drive street sign (laughs) and there's nobody seen in relationship to it there's never a time where they walk noticeably past a street sign but it keeps cutting to this sign in the middle of the fog that becomes like well what that's weird what was that choice for and it it kind of gives it the film Uh, like kind of an unreliable dreamy quality as well that's even before we get to the dream sequence that al has later on
1: right and it it, and it ties into the final sequence it kind of bookends it where they walk into this fog where perhaps they're walking into kind of an alternate universe of his telling and it begins with kind of a fantasy fantasy sequence at the end where he walks into the cop car that he claims he thinks is waiting for him which and I, i'd like to follow up on that again with our next film with the dreamlike scenes bookending the movie because i think that ties in well
0: yeah um really quickly i just wanted like you mentioning that about the cop as him imagining it i kind of read that scene i was like it well because that scene was added in because censors at the time the studio was like we can't let the bad guy get away with it we have to show that he is being arrested. And so he puts this in and I, but I was watching it and going like, oh, but he, this is still the story he's telling us. He's telling this, mm-hmm. this story unbroken. That is a fantasy sequence that yeah. is presented as real in the film, which is, I guess maybe another key of how we're supposed to watch it. But it, when I realized that, when I had that realization, like, no, he's telling us he's being arrested. He's not actually been arrested. Mm-hmm. I, I loved it. It made me love this movie more. I, I kind of like to imagine that Al just spent However long he's still wandering around. Not now, but you know, he just <laughs> at the end of the movie, he's still wandering around all night diners and roadside motels and just going from shadow to shadow.
1: Yes, yeah. I I I've always read that as a fantasy that he just lives in a hell of his own making, just waiting for the cops to finally catch up with him after everything that he did. That's how I read it. That it's just, you know, life is just a hell of your own making because of the choices that you make, because fate screws with everybody and a lot of people make awful choices, and it just compounds. that's that's how I read it. That's why i I love endings like that that are just it's it's more depressing that he's walking around in this eternal guilt than if he gets picked up by the cops. and i I love that ending. I love that implication that he's just, like you said, haunting you know, late night diners and being rude to waitresses for the rest (laughs) of his life because he's got this shadow hanging over
0: him. And, and there's nowhere for him to go in a way him being arrested is kind of like, well, he, he may get the death penalty. Otherwise he may have a place to live for the rest of his life because by the end of the movie, he can't pretend to be Haskell because Haskell is being sought for Vera's death. We haven't talked about that. Haskell is being sought, and he says that his his real name, Al, is dead, and I'm not quite sure how that came about. I but, think but,
1: because um, they found Al's clothing and identification on Haskell's body.
0: That's right. That's right. So he's kind of stuck. He can't be anywhere, mm-hmm. and that's why he's just like wandering the roadside, which is maybe a more poetic justice for him, and definitely <laughs> it is a less happy ending for him. Right. Like I said, we were ta- I, well, when talking about the cheapness of this movie, as I was reading up on it, everything, everybody talks about it, how it's a poverty, poverty row B film, that it was filmed. Uh, the, the story is it was filmed under a week for a very low budget. But as I was reading more about it, the budget was actually around $100,000, which is still not like a big budget movie back then. Um, and the production slate for this listed 14 filming days, and then I saw, I think um, Aunt Savage in her autobiography claimed that she worked for four weeks on the film. So it, it maybe wasn't as threadbare a, as they, they made it out. And mm-hmm. certainly the movie was, I was surprised to find was well-received at the time. Like it, it got mostly positive reviews.
1: Yeah. Cause I, it seemed to be kind of a, not a lost film, but it, it didn't seem to have as much critical notice in later years, it certainly wasn't one that I heard a lot about. Obviously, both of us saw it on TCM, so it wasn't, you know, really lost, but you don't hear it mentioned in the same breath as, you know, Double Indemnity, or The Postman Always Rings Twice, or things like that. You don't you don't hear as much about it as others, and obviously, I can see that from a production quality standpoint, <laughs> um, but I think as as a film it stands among those as one of the greatest noir films ever
0: yeah i think a lot of that is due to the fact that the the rights were never or the copyright uh, was never true. renewed it fell true. into public domain and so mm-hmm. the copies that were available until the restoration a few years back um, most that were readily available were missing scenes or were a very bad quality mm-hmm. and and it it maybe just wasn't seen in the way that that It should have been seen for a long time. Um, No, that that's fair. I don't. Have you seen any other Edgar G. Ulmer films? I've I've seen only one other. I've seen um, the Black Cat with Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff.
1: Yes, I've also. Is it People on Sunday? Was he directed part of that? Yeah, People on Sunday. Um, uh, screenplay by Billy Wilder, also directed by. I forgive me. I have never pronounced this name correctly. Robert Shodmak. S I O D M A K. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um. I've I've seen that and I really enjoyed it. Um. But likewise, I've seen The Black Cat and I've seen People on Sunday and Detour and that's it.
0: Okay. And The Black Cat is I, I haven't talked about it on this show, but I talked to my my friend about it on my friend Carlos's show. That is one of my favorite movies of all time. It it is another movie that, like Detour, kind of takes an unexpected turn it's all of the choices in terms of design performance filming are just unexpected and Mm -hmm. it it also leads that film a a very bizarre energy In, in a way not not like the other like german film directors that came over that brought the expressionistic style to hollywood um you look at you look at uh Mack or i i don't know how to pronounce it either or like fritz lang and right. their use of expressionism it, it isn't quite the same it, it's a little bit more uncomfortable in edgar g elmer's films it is it's it's, it's
1: far more yeah it's unsettling in a different way um it's not something that i can really put a finger on um and you were talking about the the low production values earlier lending that sense of unreality which I definitely agree it also lends it I, I I use this word far too often in describing detour but it lends it a griminess that fits in with these you know destitute people on the road dealing with you know the forces of fate the forces of you know the class structure being out to get them where they just can't catch a break like If this were a clean, pristine looking movie, it wouldn't have the same impact. Like if everything looked brand new instead of, you know, old, dirty hotel room or something like that. Do you know what I mean? Um, I think that just lends itself to this probably tall tale told by someone who has no money and was born in a gutter, quote unquote, as, as Vera said
0: grimy is a good way to describe this this is a sweaty movie uh Mm -hmm. tom neal is so like he just looks like he smells terrible all the time because he's kind (laughs) of unshaven most of it he's he's got dirt and sweat like he's always he's always just got a sheen of oil over his face does. And, and vera when we first see her i mean she looks like she's been rough living on that road like she's got dirt in her she's trying her best like she's smoothing out her clothes to look look her best but you can see that they're a little bit torn and she does have smudges on her face so yeah everybody in this movie does look dirty in a way that like even when they clean up it, it is still there and there's something about like the twist of tom Neal's mouth that looks like i don't know i don't want to talk about anybody's appearance but if there's just something about his it, it's a it is a great face <laughs> for this character
1: it, no, you're right. I, I don't think um, you're talking about his appearance so much as his performance. I think there's something about the way he moves his mouth that he looks like he's trying to be ingratiating, but it just makes you not trust him. Oh, there's something. <laughs>
0: yeah, that, that is perfect because he looks like a guy who has just been found out like he he's been found next to the broken cookie jar and he's trying to look on it get a like a pathetic look on his face like he's trying Mm -hmm. to be pathetic that's a perfect way I guess maybe I should have used that to describe it (laughs) sorry I didn't mean to interrupt
1: no no I I wanted you to continue because I feel like I've been talking so much that you forget things to
0: (laughs) follow up on no Um, no,
1: uh, but yeah there are times when he looks like he's trying to be very charming like yeah like early on when he and sue are performing at the club before sue leaves for california like there's something kind of sweet about the way they interact but there's also something kind of smarmy about him even from the beginning when he's supposed to be happy and in love and in his you know pre troubles times which is a terrible way to put it but um You know, before the fall, he still has kind of that smarmy quality to him because he's he's narrating at this point already, really, because he opens and closes the film from the diner. So even when he's happy and, you know, in love and carefree, he's still got that weird uh, that weird twist of his mouth that makes you not want to trust him completely.
0: He doesn't look like he's happy in that relationship. Like nothing looks like it makes him happy. And in fact, when he describes it, this this person who is the love of his life, who he's done everything for, or all these just trying to get to her is what's caused all this or started all this. He describes their relationship as like, she was a healthy girl. I was a healthy boy. So normal (laughs) romance. Like he just seems like not interested. He's like, well, it's just normal. What are you going to (laughs) do?
1: Yeah, exactly. She was there. She was a woman. What are you going to? Yeah, exactly. Like she was, she was the best I could do at the time was how it comes across.
0: Uh, Yeah.
1: And you know, he doesn't seem terribly concerned when she leaves. He, he doesn't, there's, there's no steady undercurrent of, oh, I can't wait to get to Sue. I can't wait to see my girl. You know, there are moments where he pays lip service to it. Um, but it, it, it comes across like lip service. And it comes across as this weirdly idealized, but not in a genuine way.
0: There, there's probably some more uh, we can talk about here. But I, I do want to say, since we, we kind of jumped past it, um, Vera's death, that he... <laughs> It's so like if everything else in this movie was kind of like suspect Vera's death is the point when you should be like, oh, no, that's ridiculous (laughs) that that it would happen that way because she she takes the phone in the room with her and Al is trying to pull the cord or get the phone away from her. So he's pulling the cord through the closed door and the cord is somehow wrapped around her neck and strangles her and then he breaks Mm -hmm. the door down and finds out that she's dead. And it's like, there's no way you would ever look at that and go, okay, she accidentally got strangled on a phone cord. <laughs> so I think, I think by yeah, the end no, of the movie- It,
1: it, it defies all logic. Um, there are so many points at which you have to say, well, why didn't you break the door down at first? Why didn't you yank the phone out of the wall instead of yanking it from where she was holding it? Um, you know, There are so many different ways that that could have gone down. And the idea, like we briefly see- her wrap it around, wrap the cord around her neck before she enters the room. So he gives himself that little bit of cover, like, well, how do you know that she actually wrapped it around her neck or that that you didn't do it? We see her do that, but it's still such an awkward thing to do even if you're really drunk, like Vera supposedly was That's such a strange and awkward thing for a drunk person to do to wrap something around their neck and then collapse onto the bed with it. Like it just, it completely defies any suspension of disbelief you're right and it's such a brutal way to die like wrapping a cord around someone's neck and strangling them like that yeah it's, it's really brutal even though you don't see it happen you just see him yanking on that cord from beneath the door knowing what's happening in the other room even for film noir that's especially brutal and bleak I think which is, th- though I love Vera, is another reason I love it because I like it when noir just goes for it and just goes for as much darkness as it can. So yeah. when I was doing my research, I, some people saw me tweet that uh, Ann Savage was on an episode of Saved by the Bell, which just blew my mind because I that was my first um, introduction to her and I didn't know it at the time. Um, but far uh, sadder, I think, and more in keeping with the Detour, was how Tom Neal ended up um, he evidently was a very successful amateur boxer. So um, was quite a good fighter. And he was in a bit of a love triangle with, is it friend show tone? Is that how you pronounce the first yes, name? I, I think. So. And uh, is it uh, Barbara Payton? I believe. Yes. Peyton and tone were engaged to be married and she was having an affair with Neil and he beat the hell out of Fran Chautone and was blacklisted after that. Ironically, I like that they, the two of them did a, a production of The Postman Always Rings Twice, kind of leaning into the noir aspect. Later, he married a woman named Gail Bennett. And I think there were um, accusations of infidelity on her part. And she was found dead. Dead with the gunshot wound. he was um, sent to jail on charges of involuntary manslaughter for it. Uh, he claimed that they had a, an altercation and the gun just accidentally discharged into the back of her head. like she had pulled a gun on him and they struggled and she ended up dead. And I, evidently they bought that story since he was convicted of, in, convicted of involuntary manslaughter as opposed to you know some form of murder so he kind of lived out the plot of detour a little bit by you know killing this woman supposedly accidentally and uh in the movie he doesn't go to jail but he ended up going to jail for it in real life which is just kind of a bizarre and depressing footnote to the production of the film
0: so our next movie i'm jumping ahead our next movie we're about to discuss is blue velvet and i could have also chosen because we were talking we wanted to do a noir and a neo-noir so I chose Blue Velvet, but I also could have chosen Lost Highway, and in many ways, I'm kind of regretting not choosing Lost Highway at this point. But um, that had a similar thing with, uh, um, gosh, what's his name, Beretta? Um, oh, Robert Blake. That that had a similar thing with uh, Robert. Oh,
1: Blake oh yes.
0: The mystery man in Lost Highway, and the charges he w- faced later as well in the death of and murder of his. Um, I can't remember if it was wife. Oh or, gosh. You know, yes. I, well, um, do you have anything more you want to say about detour or do you want to move on to, to the next film?
1: No, I mean, I'm with you. I think we could talk about detour for hours, but I think we've, we've covered a lot and it, it's a good time to move on to, to the next one.
0: From the mind of David Lynch comes a modern day masterpiece. So startling, so provocative, so mysterious that it will open your eyes to a world you have never seen before. A candy-colored clown they call the Sandman Tiptoes to my room every night Just to sprinkle stardust and to whisper Go to sleep Everything is all right I close my eyes <clears throat> One name that keeps coming up is this woman's singer. The
1: first thing I need is to get into her apartment. I don't know if you're a detective or a pervert. Do
0: you like the way I feel? Isn't it? Returning home from college to help out when his father faces serious medical issues, Jeffrey Beaumont, played by Cal McLaughlin, finds a severed ear in an empty field, which leads into the shockingly dark world of Frank Booth, full of drugs, violence, murder, and rape. David Lynch's 1985 exploration of the secrets behind white picket fences and perfectly manicured lawns remains today just as shocking as when it was first released. This was my pick. Um, People who listen to the show know that I love David Lynch. I never pass up a chance to talk about him. And I know I I said a minute ago, I should have chosen Lost Highway, but I chose this. And primarily I chose this because like Detour, it it, it is not afraid to get very grimy and very dark. And like Detour, it has a certain dreamlike quality around the edges, which is something Lynch is known for. But in this film, I think he kind of limits that a little bit to the edges where a lot of the film does seem a little bit straightforward in a way when compared to something like Lost Highway or the weirder stuff in, in Twin Peaks or Mulholland drive. This plays pretty straight for a while, but then once Frank gets into the film, it certainly gets to incredibly excessive amounts of violence and uh, like surrealism. Uh, but the touches that he is known for, the real surrealism, is kind of left to a few transitions, a few possible dream sequences, one or two shots that are just like uh, more expressionistic than they would be in real life. But I think it, it kind of follows a continuity with Detour. Like, I, I I wouldn't say that they're too similar, but just kind of like there there are themes to them and there is a a kind of distorted worldview that I think is shared between both films. I've seen this a lot. Uh, I think I, I, I saw you had tweeted out that you haven't seen this movie since you were uh, a teenager, but what's your history with this film and and uh, well, what are your thoughts on it?
1: Um, yeah, it's true. Like... <laughs> I, I again I'm kind of embarrassed to admit this I went through a quote-unquote cinephile phase in my teens and early 20s and then for various reasons haven't watched as much capital C cinema as I should um, in my late 20s and now 30s I'm trying to correct that and go back and fill in spots that I've neglected and revisit movies that you know l- like with Blue Velvet um that I just need to see again, because it's this is not a movie that you should watch only every 20 years. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I saw it for the first time. I was 14 or 15. I think, I think my first Lynch movie was Eraserhead. I had seen it a year or two prior to Blue Velvet. And I, I loved Eraserhead. And I am a huge fan of surrealism and dream logic. I connect very deeply to artists who work with you know the symbolism of dreams and the feeling of dreams it just connects to me on a really visceral level so I connected with Lynch pretty early on even though I regrettably have not watched all of his filmography but yeah I I loved the movie I don't remember being shocked by the violence or anything I just remember being shocked by uh, how much I how much I loved it! How different it made me feel! I I really connected to that dreamlike quality, but yeah, like like I tweeted out that this is a I've seen this movie a total of two times. Uh, one of them was last week, and the other time was when I more than twenty years ago, and it was a really interesting experience because there are certain movies I don't remember every single film that I've ever watched, but there are certain films that I remember what I was wearing, what the weather was like, what time of day it was, where I was sitting, what room I was in when I watched it, how I felt, how I felt physically, how my how it made me feel intellectually and emotionally and psychologically. And Blue Velvet is one of those movies. I had a really strange, almost out-of-body experience re-watching it uh, because I felt like I was watching it for the first time, but I also felt like I was transported back to my 14, 15-year-old self and kind of having this new galaxy of cinema opened up in front of me and realizing the different ways that filmmakers can tell stories and the different stories that are out there to be told. Um, So it was a really weird feeling that is probably very, you know, Lynchian in and of itself, that kind of dreamlike spanning decades um, out of body experience that is kind of ill-defined and dreamlike on its own. But yeah, I I loved it just as much this time. I, it, it just, it made me regret all the years i spent not re-watching it and not checking out a lot of other um of lynch's works because like i said i i have only seen a few of his films and uh twin peaks i've not seen like lost highway i haven't seen some other things that i should see like i said um it's it is a bit of an embarrassment for me that i there are so so many good films out there that i either haven't seen or i haven't watched since my little cinephile phase when i was quite young
0: Oh no, I I, I think I, I'm in the same boat where I went through a couple of years of devouring so much and watching so much and specifically going out of my way to rent black and white movies whenever my family would go up to Blockbuster in their tiny little classics section. Or <laughs> um, like I would I would specifically look for films that I had seen mentioned in like these lists or, or you mm-hmm. know th- that seemed like Cinephile 101. Yeah, and through my twenties and now I'm in my early forties, and I just I I still do that, but it is not as much now. I'm I'm kind of like I'm not nearly as focused. I just kind of like hop all over the place with how I watch film. But mm-hmm. Lynch is Lynch is like I've said one of my favorite directors, if not my favorite director. And there's something about him that I respond to in a way that I I, I have a hard time articulating because I feel like I understand his movies on an emotional level long before I get them on an intellectual level. I've actually stopped reading a lot of analysis of his film because I would read these things about how or what like Lost Highway means or what what Mulholland Drive means. And I would be like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. It kind of ruins my enjoyment of the movie a little bit for a little while if I keep that too much in my foremind, because I will watch it and like Lost Highways, one in particular, like I watched it just about every day of the week that it was playing in Anchorage, Alaska. And I went several times with different friends each time. And every night I would have a different conversation and a different idea about what the film meant. I, I feel like a lot of people will look at it and go like, oh, this is what the film means. This is what the, the symbols mean. I look at it and I'm like, well, this is what the film makes me feel. And this is what the symbolism of it makes me feel. But I don't quite under, I don't claim to understand what he's trying to like expressly say or what the meaning behind everything is. It, more so, things like uh, like, a, like Lost Highway or Mulholland Drive or Twin Peaks or certainly Inland Empire. I think Blue Velvet, aside from the dreamlike flavor he gives everything, is fairly easy to understand. It's pretty easy to see what he's trying to get across. You said this movie, like, it, it didn't quite shock you with its violence or how extreme it was. I, I was maybe a little older than you, maybe I, w- I was just a little sheltered because it was kind of at the, the height of when I was getting into film and I hadn't seen too many movies like this, where, man, no, that that first introduction of Frank and that kind of ritualistic rape th- that happens with him and does Isabella Rossellini, a- at first you're kind of like, it's shocking in a way that is disturbing, partly because you're also laughing a little bit about how weird Dennis Hopper is in the scene and how so over the top he is that it becomes incredibly unrealistic. Or that scene later on where, where Isabella Rossellini appears out of the bushes and she's naked and bruised and cut. And like she's saying, like, he put his disease in me and she's so lost. I remember watching this and being just like, not not shaken to my core, but just like, holy cow. This is something, like, I don't know who I can share this movie with. This is not going to be for everybody.
1: I agree. Um, there are two things I wanted to follow up on. Um, first, again, please don't let me, like, Lynch explain to you. Because obviously you know his work more much uh, more intimately than I do. But to me, his work is, I'm, I'm fascinated by how he works. Like he's very sophisticated on an intellectual level, but he does not operate on an intellectual level. He's, he deals in emotional truths and he speaks directly to an audience's subconscious. And I'm always blown away by how he does that. I, people who can reach inside me and speak to the mystery of me, speak to that part of my brain or my psyche or my soul or whatever it is. There are very few people out there like that. And I'm, fascinated by people like that I have a deep abiding love for people like that so I know what you mean about perhaps avoiding more intellectual discussions and just wanting to deal with the emotional truth of it because that's it's I'm not trying to say it's just about feeling because there's quite a bit of um, wit and intellect to it but to me it's more about uh, maybe leaving the unexplainable unexplained and just appreciating it on a level where you just feel it but also your point about not being shocked by the violence. I, I was having a conversation on Twitter with someone a while ago about when I was younger, I think I was more numb to things like violence and trauma. Perhaps because I had not experienced it at that point, to that extent. I because you know as you age, unfortunately a lot of people experience different kinds of trauma and that makes it perhaps easier to empathize with fictional characters when they go through similar things, or even if it's not similar, but watching someone go through a trauma, it affects me much more deeply now. And I felt myself not being shocked by the violence this time around, but it, it, I was more shaken than I was the first time. I think,
0: you know, I I was still a teenager myself and I was still primarily used to watching whatever my family rented, you know? And I, I, w- I was into horror, so I would get horror films, but I wasn't used to seeing this in a, in a movie that kind of looked like this. Like, so, like sometimes you, you, yeah. you get a movie and you think like, okay, this is gonna be a safe movie and it'll have something in it. that's like, whoa, I didn't expect that. And then sometimes you know, like, oh, this is an independent film, so all bets are off. Um, and I just hadn't <laughs> been able to tell the difference at the time, and especially because this film has so many trappings of classic cinema. Like the opening and that that very tasteful cursive that everything is written in in the credits <laughs> it's against that gently that gently blowing blue velvet curtain, it looks like mm-hmm. it is a prestige film from the 40s or 50s in color. Exactly. Jumping off of like being kind of a prestige film from the 40s or 50s, I guess we can get right into the movie. But I kind of want to talk about this. This is just like jumping into my mind. Laura Dern in this movie, and Laura Dern's great all the time lynch gives her one of the best film entrances she emerges from the shadows of that tree and the music swells and and that's what i'm saying it does feel like such a such a classic film he's consciously using hollywood's past in this as part of like the like like this is a fantasy kind of thing to like kind of get you into like sucker you into thinking that this is a a safe and pleasant fantasy that is being presented to you from Hollywood.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's such a gorgeous moment, but it's also so eerie. Like there's a horror movie element to it with someone emerging out of the shadows like that. Like it's a weird tension between, you know, this beautiful meeting the love of your life moment and this kind of terrifying moment at the same time with someone coming out of the shadows. And know the the colors and the all the cinematography everything feels hyper real so even the beautiful moments have that edge of feeling not quite right feeling just a little unsettling and off-putting so even when you know you've got these two gorgeous human beings on screen being very cute together there's something just not quite right about it which i really love
0: that's also there like something i would not have noticed as a kid well a teen and I certainly cannot help but notice now is Jeffrey played by Kyle McLaughlin, who is I don't know, uh, he, there's not something not right about him, and very clearly there, <laughs> there is there is voyeurism in him, of course, but he's presented and acted as he's just this like aw-shucks little dweeb, you know, he's such a dork, the the chicken walk, that he he says like his jokes and <laughs> they, yeah. There's that scene at his father's hardware store where he holds up his fingers to the blind man and it's like how many fingers? And the guy says 4 and he's like I don't know how you do it. But it's so clearly like it's so clearly visible that the man standing next to the blind guy is tapping on the shoulders the number of fingers that are being held up. And it's like well, Jeffrey, what do you, <laughs> you you don't see that? So he's he's like presented as so innocent and naive, but there's such a there is a darkness in him that becomes much more apparent as the film goes along because the deeper he gets into this mystery, the more he certainly is still conflicted by it, but the more he is seduced by it, it quite literally with Isabella Rossellini at, at a certain point.
1: Right. Yeah. There's, there's such an, I'm so fascinated by Kyle McLaughlin as an actor, because there's always this undercurrent with him. Just I've never seen him play anything straightforward. There's always, an undertone of menace or darkness or, that sometimes he's aware of. And sometimes he's not I meaning his character. I mean, sometimes the character knows that he's hiding something. And sometimes the character is completely unaware that things are kind of boiling under the surface, but I've never ever seen him place something straightforward. It's, it's always, you know, it's not necessarily an innocent like Jeffrey, but you know, in this film, he definitely, he's, He's kind of, he's very alluring because he's a physically attractive man and he, he's coming across very charming in some of the things he's saying, but there's, you're right, there's something just not quite right about Jeffrey from the very beginning.
0: So you've only seen this twice. I'm assuming you have not seen any of the deleted scenes. I've not, no. Okay, so the I don't have the new Criterion edition, which apparently has more deleted scenes, but there's about 20 to 30 minutes of deleted scenes on the Blu-ray I do have. There's an entire deleted subplot of Jeffrey at college, where he's kind of at a party and he's, he's basically watching a sexual assault about to happen. Like a, basically, he's about he's watching a date rape about to happen, and he's doing the thing where he's like hiding in the shadows, like he does when he hides in the uh, closet later on. Mm-hmm. Where it really paints him in, in an unflattering light, but also really does foreshadow what is going to happen with him. It's not that I don't like it. I think I think seeing a full cut of those movie, this movie would be interesting. And of course, David Lynch had final cut. So he he only cut things that he wanted to cut out. But I, I do like in this film that we kind of discover how how much darkness is in Jeffrey. And and I'm not saying that like he's a dark character. I'm just saying that there's something in him that is responding to all of the horrible things around him with more than just disgust. Like he is disgusted and shocked, but he's also drawn into it at the same time.
1: Yeah. I, I don't think it's necessarily Jeffrey. I I feel like the implication is that isn't everyone like he's supposed to be presented as, you know, the ideal, innocent, charming young man and Lord Dern's character doesn't really get drawn into it. Sandy doesn't really get drawn into it as much, but she's so fascinated by Jeffrey and she sees that darkness in him the beginning i think like what what does she ask him like i can't tell you if if you're weird or a pervert or something like that but she's she's in top she's intoxicated by it though so she's seduced by it as well and she's like this platonic ideal of the innocent with you know her beauty and the blonde hair and the you know innocent clothing and the way she enters you know but yeah so i i i feel like it's it's there in everyone and obviously you know that's a recurring theme with lynch is the things hiding underneath the surface of even the most ideal looking lives. But yeah, I, uh, with Jeffrey, I, there, there's definitely more going on there than just your typical, um, you know, seedy underbelly of the suburbs. I, I, I don't know. That might just be Kyle McLaughlin being Kyle McLaughlin though. <laughs> you
0: no, know, you're right. There is something like, I like Kyle McLaughlin a lot. There is something I, I really enjoy about him and everything, but there is always a feeling that there is something underneath him that's not as wholesome as what's on the outside. And even in uh, agent Cooper in twin peaks, who is kind of a paragon of just uh, like of morality in that world um, that you get the feeling that there's something darker beneath, which to be fair, the show does address like that does become a, p- a part of the, the story later on. And it was not, until this viewing, I am embarrassed to say that I started to realize how much uh, Laura Dern's character is also seduced a bit by the darkness. Like she doesn't go nearly as far, but she doesn't just help Jeffrey or like kind of like stand aside while Jeffrey does it. She is actively like interested. She wants to know as well. She's a little bit more scared. Um, She maybe has a little bit more trepidation. She is always kind of like Like she changes her plans to help him break into that house. Like she is always like, no, I want you to go and do this. Like, but she says she doesn't, but then she always goes through and does it anyway, without, without a lot of uh, convincing, you know, she, so there is something in her that is also responding to it. Just not to the extent that, that Jeffrey does.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like she kind of pulls herself apart a little bit to try to maintain that innocence, but she's, she's very intrigued and wants to hear all about it.
0: I do love how, Eerily, this movie starts like that scene of Kamala Lachlan walking through the field and it's the second time he's looking for a rock he's going to just toss a rock and break a beer bottle and he finds an ear the idea of just finding a body part in the middle of a very quiet nice field obviously there's like litter there in the field but it's such a it's such a spooky thing and I said when I was watching it that I laughed at Frank a lot the first time I watched it because he's so over the top that it, it does seem a little bit like parody at times, even when he's doing really horrible things. A lot of the hu- the humor in this would have would have escaped me as a teenager. Like when he takes the ear to the cop and he's like, okay, let's see it. Yep, that's a human ear. <laughs> and then there's the editing where he's like, he's like the coroner is like, it looks like the ear was cut off with a pair of scissors. Quick cut to scissors cutting the caution tape around the- I love that. There, there are jokes in this movie that I think are- completely intentional. It it is, there is humor to it. And Lynch does that a lot where he, he can, he can find, make something incredibly sad and incredibly funny at the same time. Exactly. Um, Like, I I mean, I keep talking about Twin Peaks. It's maybe my favorite thing ever. So I keep bringing it up all the time, (laughs) but there are scenes in Twin Peaks that I cry and laugh at the same time (laughs) because it's so incredibly sad, but it still makes me laugh because it's something a little bit silly about it.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like I think it ties into that, you know, tapping into emotional truths rather than intellectual ones, like it, tapping into different emotions at the same time. Like you said, though, I I love, I I think I like just started laughing and clapping my hands at that transition with the scissors. Um and the the bizarre deadpan reactions, especially of Sandy's dad, because I there were times when I went back and forth on whether. I thought Sandy's dad was in on the the conspiracy um, watching it the second time because I didn't remember the plot per se uh, from my you know 20-year-old viewing of the movie. Um, so I wasn't sure ever if Sandy's dad was in on it with the yellow man. And I'm still not sure that it matters.
0: I definitely thought her dad was in on it when I first saw it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just seemed like his reactions to it, especially when he shows up at the end and he's giving a look to Jeffrey and he comes up and he's like, don't worry, Jeffrey, just be cool kind of attitude. Like it did make me think he might, he might be in on it, but now watching it back, I kind of think it's just that he maybe suspected something and he's trying to like Mm -hmm. trying to, to wait it out or, or draw it out of his partner or whatever. Yeah. That's, that's
1: kind of where I landed was that he was investigating, uh, doing an internal investigation of the other detective and just kind of trying to keep Jeffrey cool until they could, you know, ensnare him basically. But yeah, I went back and forth, but again, you know, that darkness and that corruption and that disease is always there. So I'm not sure. I don't know. I go back and forth on it, but I think I agree with you on that.
0: Yeah. Well, it's also uh, maybe a little confusing intentionally. So because we only get glimpses of what is really going on. Mm -hmm. Right. Jeffrey puts together a theory of what is happening, but it's all based on only what he sees. He doesn't know what the full relationships of, of everybody are. And sure. we we are diving into the deep end in a way of of the darkness in this very perfect, picturesque looking town. And yet it, it, the implication is always there is that it, it goes deeper, that we're only seeing this bit and he might there might be further depths for him to go to, but he clearly like, luckily maybe gets out of it in time by the end
1: the things are fuzzy around the edges and intentionally so obviously you know you talked about things being dream like the edges like i talked earlier about kind of the hyper reality of it and it not feeling everything feeling just a little off the colors are just a little too bright in the kind of idyllic sequences and i just i love how just turning the saturation up Lends an eeriness and an unsettling nature to things that are supposed to be happy.
0: Yeah, well, especially we're jumping all over the place. We don't need to go chronologically here, but especially. <laughs> I'm <when> sorry. <laughs> you, no, no, I'm I'm perfectly happy with it. I didn't mean to, I didn't mean to say that as it's a bad thing, um, <laughs> because I, I just I just realized I really wanted to get to talking about the ending, but there's still a lot in between, and so this has given me a good <laughs> opportunity to go to the ending. But you talk about the the about that, and it works so well too at the ending where. After all of this darkness, we get the happiest ending possible. And yet there's still Lynch still throws in not a uh, kind of like little touches that let us know this isn't quite reality. Like the darkness is still there. These characters have just decided to ignore it. <laughs> like um, yes. the, the ending, it, the movie ends and Jeffrey is like sitting out in the backyard while his aunts and girlfriend his high school girlfriend are <laughs> making lunch for him inside and they call him in and it's a perfect sunny day. He goes inside like his are there, his girlfriend's there, his girlfriend's parents are there socializing as well. Like it's, it's like the hero, the heroes of the movie are like, here we are. We're like that adventure is over. Now we're just having some dinner. It, it's almost a wizard of Oz ending where he wakes up and he's like, and you were there and you were there and you were there. But there's something about it that's so happy that makes you suspicious especially after what we've seen before which he puts a a real nail into with that fake fake robin (laughs) clockwork bird which which was a choice it was a conscious choice to use basically what amounts to a child's toy bird yeah as as a symbol of the robins have come back and of course there's that scene earlier where sue is talking about the robins represent love in the darkness of the world and so we get this image of happiness and love has returned to the world, but it is fake. And it's holding in its mouth a beetle, a, a bug. A, a, yeah. a, a dar- the darkness. So it does feel a bit like, like, like the, it, it's contradictory in a way because the movie ends and on its surface, it looks like Jeffrey is waking up from a bad dream to reality. And yet the way it's presented is as if he has escaped reality a very nice dream
1: exactly exactly like the the seedy underbelly you know i hate to keep using that phrase i apologize but you know this underworld that represents the reality of his town and the reality of his life that he never recognized before that's the reality and it does it feels like a dream sequence like it's very artificial um and self-consciously artificial with the, the lighting and the colors and it's got this haze over it like a dream and yeah it's got you know, the beginning of the film is Jeffrey's dad falls over and then we cut to images of the the, the bugs, the beetles in the dirt. And that's the same beetle that the robin's holding, letting them know that this decay, this, you know, undergrowth of disgusting squirmy things that you don't want to look at is always there. And the bright, cheery elements are more disturbing to me sometimes the dark elements that show the reality because it's this glossy veneer over all these other horrible things that are happening um and uh, there's something about you know obviously to say that a lynch film is dreamlike is not a groundbreaking insight (laughs) but there's something about his characters in this movie at least that it, it feels like they're in kind of a perpetual limbo like they talk about having you know backstories But these people seem like walking archetypes instead of people with, you know, years of lived experience in their past of people who live and breathe and walk around in real life. They don't feel like anything other than, you know, strange symbols from your own dreams. Like, especially when we get into Frank's henchmen and Ben's place, where we're seeing the actual reality of the town and things get even stranger and dreamier and more, you know, indicative of the actual subconscious, which kind of reveals, you know, this is what really goes on in the human mind. But yeah, like I feel like I've gone all over the place with that response, but I, it probably is appropriate for the movie because this is not even though it's straightforward for a Lynch film, it's not straightforward in terms of like perhaps detour, I guess. (laughs)
0: Well, it's deceptively straightforward, actually, because for a while, I, I was a little disappointed in how not weird this was for a Lynch film, because I, I really, I really respond to Lynch's more out there surrealism, like, I, right. I, I love it when he gets really strange. Mm-hmm. And for a while, this one disappointed me because it, I felt it didn't do that. I mean, it did it in the fact that what we're seeing that people are doing really strange things like like uh, Ben <laughs> uh, Dean Stockwell as Ben holy cow uh, like uh. we're seeing we're seeing Ben's lip syncing uh, to in dreams to a Roy Arbison song with a, mm-hmm. a garage light in front of his face and this that feels weird but the movie itself to me felt like like well that's that that's kind of normal and I, right. I don't like that yeah. as much I don't like that as much as the other stuff Lynch does. But the more you dig into this movie, the stranger it really is. And it, it has just as much of the the kind of strange, disturbing surrealism as some of his other films. And it it is a trick that he does in the movie itself. It's just like the surface looks kind of normal. But when you get into it, like, it's very strange.
1: Exactly. Like, I, I found myself, especially... At Ben's place, um, just just because I love Brad Dorf as a performer, I found myself searching the frame for the background and seeing what the other actors were doing. Besides Dean Stockwell, Brad Dorf might have my favorite performance in this movie, even though he's a pretty minor character.
0: You just um, so a couple of times, but God, he is so magnetic on screen.
1: He is. It's just a, oh my goodness, I can't keep my eyes off of him. Like just jumping up on the arm of a couch, and you know just the way he moves and the way he looks at people the i
0: i fucking love his hair in this movie just how it hangs over his one eye like yes he, he looks really like like what a weird gang frank has but he looks really cool like i i don't there's just something i i i'm with you i love brad durf as a performer and yeah i, I love seeing him and stuff
1: he is and i i'm with you like i think i hope this was intentional and not just me being very strange But obviously he's scary and dangerous, but he's also really sexy in this movie. Like (laughs) the weird combination of danger and sex and being attracted to things that you think you shouldn't be attracted to, I think is rolled up in that character very much.
0: So like I I talked about laughing at some of the inappropriate moments in this. And I was watching, there's a documentary on the Blu-ray. They talk about filming the scene with Frank's introduction where he uh, assaults Isabella Rossellini and is you know doing the amyl nitrate or nitrous oxide they they never quite explain what it is but it looks like it's probably nitrous and he's you know he's saying all that weird stuff and he's putting the blue velvet in his mouth and in that that scene Isabella Rossellini or in the documentary Isabella Rossellini talks about how they were filming that and David Lynch couldn't stop laughing that he was laughing the entire time that Frank was doing all these things. And she would ask him like, what's so funny? What are you laughing about? And he's like, I don't know. It's just so ridiculous. And that she didn't understand why he was laughing. And that years later she watched the film and realized that she couldn't stop laughing, watching the scene either. (laughs) And it might've, she kind of attributes it to the fact that Lynch himself found it so funny, Mm. but there is like, I don't know. I don't know how much we want to get into it. I don't know if you have any opinions on the subject, but, as much as I love Lynch, I am kind of a little bit, I, I don't know how to feel about the fact that so many of his movies are women in trouble. Like in- Inland Empire is subtitled a woman in trouble. He, the women in his films can often feel a little bit like they're, they're symbols to be degraded. I, I don't think that quite bears out because I think Dorothy in this movie has a lot more agency Or she uses what agency she can more than might seem at the at the outset more than a lot of this film's detractors gave credit to. Like I know Ebert was famously Ebert as uh, famously hated this movie, and he Mm -hmm. would often call out how much Isabella Rossellini is mistreated on on screen as the reason he doesn't like it. And you watch it, and you realize that she is taking back as much power as she can, whenever she can. The way that she interacts with Jeffrey, that she is taking power over how she is degraded in a way to to gain some comfort. I mean, I, I don't know. I'm a I'm a I'm a white male in my early 40s, so maybe I don't know at all what I'm talking about. I don't <laughs> I don't have the experience to view this from the right perspective. But I I, I also feel a little uncomfortable with it. Just how much it repeats in Lynch's films, the woman that is just kind of used and victimized in a way that, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know if I'm explaining it quite well.
1: No, I I understand where you're coming from. Um, Again, I, I can't speak to his full body of work. I hate that I have to keep falling back on this, because I have not seen enough of his work. But I know what you're saying, Um, you know, with, you know, with Dorothy Valens, and, you know, Laura Palmer, and you know, a history of being victimized and a history of sexual violence. But I don't know if I, I honestly don't feel educated enough to have an opinion on his body of work as a whole to answer the question. It's a good question. And I I know what you're talking about and I, I'm familiar with Ebert's views on it, um, thinking that the movie, you know, victimized Isabella Rossellini and did not justify that depiction on screen, um, that the movie... Didn't support um, showing a woman being abused and humiliated and degraded repeatedly like that. Um, I I think I agree with you that she seemed very much in control with Jeffrey. I do not think she was portrayed the entire movie as someone who was constantly being victimized by. <sighs> She was not a victim at every moment in her life, but that doesn't mean she wasn't a victim. That doesn't mean that what Frank did to her wasn't horrible. But honestly, I I appreciate how it explored how someone uses their own sexuality to deal with sexual trauma, um, to try to work out what she what she likes and take power in a way. I, I appreciate that it she kind of discovered things that she enjoyed and obviously there's a context where what she was going through was horrific but some of the things that she was doing on her own with jeffrey um i like the the implication that consensual sex can be messy and consensual sexuality can be messy and can be fraught with a lot of emotion and a lot of psychological realization and That it's not cut and dry. I'm not trying to make it sound like victimhood is not cut and dry. Obviously, Frank was raping her and was victimizing her. But as far as um, Dorothy's relationship with Jeffrey, I like that it was kind of showing that you're not always the person that you think you are and kind of exploring what he thought of as... Immorality and his kind of descent into it, if that makes sense. Um, I, if I am not answering your question at all, I apologize. No, no, you're um,
0: you're, you're doing great. It's perfect. What I was okay. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, but yeah, I, I know what you're saying. Um, the, again, I'd have to see his full filmography to really grapple with that question, and even then, I don't know if I would be able to give you a definitive answer. Um, but I, I, d- I think it's a good question to ask, though. I think it's something you should always ask, if you know sometimes. Um, violence or sexual assault is something that needs to be dealt with. And sometimes it's used gratuitously or it's used for shock value or it's used because the creator, I'm not saying this is true of Lynch, but it's used because the creator enjoys those things themselves. I'm not saying depiction equals endorsement, but there are problematic creators out there who depict these things And it's not coming from a place of good faith or it's not coming from a place of, you know, telling a story artistically in good faith.
0: It does, it is a theme that comes up so much that I'm kind of like, what do I feel about his representation? There there is also this fact that he is kind of like, he is an Eagle Scout. Everybody talks about how wholesome wholesome he is. People that know him uh, intimately say like, he is such a a wholesome, sunny, warm, serene person. Isabel Rossellini, they were in a relationship for many years and I, he did her wrong the way he ended that relationship but she still has nothing but good things to say about him says that basically refers to him as the love of her life so there is something about the fact that these people that know him and so i'm just looking at it as an, as an outsider and maybe feeling a little guilty about about <laughs> like how i feel like, like it's being pre- like it's being presented even though especially in this movie none of this stuff is presented in a titillating way there is nothing titillating about any of Isabella rossellini's nudity like when Mm -hmm. she shows up at the end it's it's horrifying what Mm -hmm. it's representing like we like as an audience we know it's not sexy something has gone wrong it is something like when she i'm talking about when she walks out of the bushes right
1: yeah it's very tragic like it's very i don't I can't, well, it's, it's not presented as sexy, as you say, it's presented as something horrible has happened to this woman and she needs assistance. She needs help.
0: And so maybe, maybe I'm reading into it. Maybe it's just like, I I want to say like liberal white guilt, but it, like, since I'm not, I'm, it's just, you know, you, you, like you get into that mode where you're, you're being a little bit too hyper attentive to something and saying like, okay, what, what's wrong about this? <laughs> um, no, I know what you mean. Like, I, I don't think that I know there are some people
1: who believe that there's no place in film for presenting, like depicting sexual assault or um, depicting certain acts of violence. But obviously depicting something doesn't mean that you enjoy it. So a lot of that's something that happens in real life a lot to a lot of different people. Um, And there are stories to be told dealing with emotional fallout of that and the emotional truths of that as i've mentioned um but it is i I think it's an important thing to ask yourself the question how do i feel about this how do i think that this affects the work do i think this is um necessary do i think this is gratuitous is this something i personally am comfortable with again i I don't think there's ever anything wrong with asking yourself, do I personally feel okay with how this is being presented? I, I think that that's an important thing to do. If you just accept things um, at face value, or if you see someone who do, keeps doing something over and over again, and it doesn't sit right with you, there might be a reason for that. But I, again, I'm not someone who thinks that you shouldn't deal with sexual assault in film. Um, I'm not going to tell any other survivors how to feel about that subject because that's a very personal thing. Yeah. But um, I, I am a big believer in content warnings. I'll tell you that. I, I'm not someone who thinks that it never ever serves a purpose in storytelling. I, I think it's overused by certain people, not Lynch necessarily. Um, but I do think it is... Sexual assault is something that people rely on as a storytelling device or quote unquote um, character um, building device that uh, some people rely on t- too much for shock value or as the go to to say, how can we show this woman as someone who is, because it's usually a woman um, being depicted on film at least, how can we show this woman, you know, rising above a trauma?
0: Everything I see in the documentaries and read in interviews with Lynch about how he does this is that he works like he he does allow the actors to create the character basically. So the, Dorothy isn't just a character necessarily that he he just wrote and somebody else is saying the lines. Dorothy is a character that Isabella Rossellini did create as well. Like the she talks about how how she wanted to play these scenes and the, the, like the scene at the end where she comes out and she's naked that the you can see it in the pose that she's in that she had in her mind those, Im- those famous images, that famous picture from mm-hmm. Vietnam where the, the naked villager, the child is running towards the camera and you know the bombs are dropping behind her. And mm-hmm. um, you can see it in it. Like it, it, So I think it recurs enough in his, uh, so many times in his films, but there always is, especially in like the Twin Peaks, when we get to Firewalk with me and we're, we're following Laura for a while, but it seems like in Blue Velvet, Dorothy is given enough shading that she is not just the victim which it can seem like on a first viewing if you're not really paying attention to anything else but she is given enough shading that she is taking power when she can from wherever she can and doing what she needs to serve to survive certainly for her kid Um, yeah
1: yeah and I, I feel like there is one of the key distinctions I think is there seems to be a lot of empathy for Dorothy Uh, she's she's not played for laughs even though you mentioned that you know um he like Lynch was laughing during certain scenes and she herself was laughing during during certain scenes I don't think her character is played for laughs or for the audience to scorn her or feel disdain for her I, I'm <laughs> I'm not going to use the dreaded strong female character, but there is depth to Lynch's female characters and um, there is nuance to them. And, uh, you know, I was reading up on Blue Velvet a little bit and that scene where Dorothy is naked on Jeffrey's lawn and kind of reaching out for comfort, um, it, it, that's something that uh lynch drew on from his childhood he remembered seeing a woman walking naked down the street and was traumatized by it and i think a lot of his work comes across as very personal even if you don't know anything about the man and his actual life like we were talking about how it feels like he reaches into your subconscious and speaks to your subconscious instead of to your conscious intellect it feels like you're seeing his subconscious at the same time. It feels very personal, even if you don't know him personally. And I can, I can see that from that scene with Dorothy. And I think that's why it comes across more sensitively, I guess, because you can feel his empathy for that woman and the trauma at seeing that and that image recurring um, in his mind and that image kind of shaping him and how perhaps he perhaps his empathy for other people, or perhaps um, his empathy for someone who's clearly survived a trauma, that might be, that might recur just because that hit him at such an early age and was such a formative experience that he's trying to exercise that from his own subconscious, Um, which it feels like based on my limited experience with his work, it feels like he's trying to not exercise demons, but kind of work out his own dreams in a way that somehow miraculously speaks to other people's dreams. Like his movies are dreams that speak to other people's dreams directly without going through the typical, um, you know, sit and watch a straightforward plot and then dissect it. Like he's speaking directly to the subconscious by way of something that happened to him and embedded itself into his subconscious. If that makes sense.
0: Oh, that is, that's actually a perfect way of putting it. I think
1: I I always write better when I'm like talking to somebody else than when I'm actually sitting down to write. So I'm going to have to write that down when I listen back to the
0: podcast. (laughs) Oh, okay. Yeah. Like he talks a lot about how everybody has a little bit of emotional ESP. Like you can walk into a coffee shop and tell that somebody is sad or that somebody over there is frustrated. Like we can all just pick up these signals in the air from other people and is how he puts it. And he talks a lot about meditation as kind of just like uh, the way he calls it, catching the big fish, like going really deep to get these big these big ideas. Um, yeah, he's a fascinating filmmaker to me. Like he 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 relies so much on accidents of fate, happy accidents on set to create something uh, magical. To maybe use too much highfalutin language on it. Um, <laughs> But he also is very methodical in other ways. And then he refuses to talk about these movies and their meanings. So it it just like it leads to so many theories about what everything is and what the psychological meaning behind everything is. So it's it's fun to kind of pick them apart, but it's also in a way a a little bit useless. because It's like we're just not going to know what was meant, what was an accident.
1: Right. Like, I I know this is ironic considering we've spent, you know, the past hour, you know, dissecting the movie, but uh, it's it's kind of um, counterproductive to try to break it apart. It's like, it's like waking up from a dream and remembering all the bizarre but meaningful things that happened and then trying to pick it apart and make it make sense. It's so much more satisfying to just be its own totality, its own story that you just accept as is. And, you know, I'm not trying to, you know, pretend to speak for David Lynch or understand him, but I can understand why you would just want to say, this is the dream. This is the movie. This is the television show. This is what it is. You don't, I'm not going to give, you know, hours of interviews to help you pick apart the subconscious because that's not how the subconscious works. You know, if you, if you work through, intuition and instinct and emotion and you know dream logic you can't force it to follow something like really rigorous and rigid and I'm not trying to say he doesn't work from a place of intellect I feel like I'm uh telling him short by saying that but that's not my intention at all but it's you can't force it to fit into that box and I can't imagine how frustrating and tedious it would be to do so on his part
0: I think he he kind of feel feels the movie is the discussion of the movie, like it, it, it's kind of in mm-hmm. there. So what 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 does he need to talk about, or what does he need to right? Like what yeah. more does he need to say?
1: Yeah, and I, I know the meme. I I don't remember. Is it Eraserhead? Where he says oh, Eraserhead is my most spiritual film, and the interviewer says elaborate on that, and he says no.
0: Yeah, yeah, That's which it. is
1: just a perfect distillation of his approach. Yeah. Uh,
0: so. I feel like I could keep going on about this too, but we're running out of time. I do have a couple, <laughs> couple of things, but they, they feel a little bit like a, a little bit light because they're they're a little bit more trivia than than what we've been talking about. But um, this, Angela Badalmenti, this is the first movie that he's done with David Lynch. He was brought on by a producer because they were having trouble getting together Isabella Rossellini's cover of Blue Velvet. She's apparently wasn't a very good singer. She says this herself that she just couldn't do it. And so they they, Got uh, Badalamenti to come in and uh, he worked out a pretty good cover. I think she does fine in the movie. (laughs) That turned out to be a great accident on set, I guess, because they've had such a a long running working relationship now. Um, They've done several albums together. He's done music for just about every Lynch project since this, uh, if not all of the music for every Lynch project.
1: Yeah. And I'm with you. I think she did a good job. I, I like that she has that kind of like Nico-esque Chanteuse thing going on um, with Rossellini's cover of Blue Velvet. But
0: there's a, there's a little bit of adding to the dreamlike factor. There's a little bit of um, strangeness in that scene when she's singing Blue Velvet because both times it will, it will kind of do a fade or a cut and it'll go back and Isabella Rossellini is suddenly wearing a different outfit on stage and the stage is much more empty. The only other person up there is the piano yeah. player. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that happens a couple of times. And I don't know if it means anything. It, it, I mean, it has to to Lynch, but I'm not sure what what the reason for it is. I don't know if it's supposed to be a fantasy it, it or what that Jeffrey is seeing her now in kind of a, a more uh, traditionally like sexy femme fatale outfit or, or just a more mm-hmm. expressionistic stage setting. But it, it's really um, it's interesting to see to see it happen. Uh, yeah,
1: yeah. I, it's definitely something I feel like I'll need to. <laughs> I, I won't. I won't wait twenty years to watch it again <laughs> to, to to pick up on not necessarily clues like I'm trying to.
0: Yeah. You know, no, pick no. it
1: apart, but just pick up on little details that add to the the whole experience. I guess you'd say.
0: Yeah, I don't. I don't look for meaning. The, I mean, meaning. I don't look for the clues to try and unravel Lynch's movies anymore. I actually just try to experience them because I feel like mm-hmm. I enjoy them more that way. But mm-hmm. I do like p- picking out the little details. I do like noticing little things like that. Like this time, or it was not this time, but it wasn't until I had the Blu-ray that I realized that. Kyle McLaughlin has a gold earring (laughs) I saw that I
1: noticed that I I I thought that is such a strange detail that seems so out of place on this clean cut 50s-esque you know um, golden boy sort of
0: because it's such a thin little little sliver that I'm wondering if it was actually ever meant to be noticed because he he, but it is there and it's just so odd that like watching this on VHS and then on DVD I just never noticed it before
1: um yeah I noticed it this time because I was watching it on a much bigger television set um oh yeah. but yeah I I I would submit that it's if it's in a Lynch film it's meant to be there um I know we talked about like happy accidents but I don't think that um he would miss a detail like that to me it just it's like a hint of like you know jeffrey might be a little more quote-unquote dangerous than he lets on um even though you know a man wearing an earring isn't dangerous but at the time especially in the context of this kind of idyllic 50s kind of ozzy and harriet vibe that they have going on in a way you know him having an earring kind of stands out as kind of making him a little more dangerous. And plus it just ties into the fact that he found an ear in a field and kind of tying in, um, ears as kind of a gateway to the, the head with, um, you know, being literally a hole into your head. So.
0: Uh, yeah. Interesting. Uh, yeah, it's uh, there's so much, there's so much you can unpack just it, 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 I'm, I'm so happy he refuses to talk about his movies like this. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, I don't know how much more you had to say. I, I kind of want to say this one thing. Um, the This movie also features uh, David Lynch's first collaboration with Julie Cruz, who would of course, he would produce two albums for, write all their lyrics. Uh, and she did quite a bit of music for Twin Peaks. The The way that she was brought in is that David Lynch really wanted Song to the Siren, the this Mortal Coils cover of song to the siren at the scene where Sandy and Jeffrey go to the party and dance, but they wouldn't license it. They didn't want to license any of their music, this mortal coil. And so he got Julie Cruz and they kind of, it does sound a little bit like it. Like it's not a sound alike, but it's that type of vibe. And another great relationship, working relationship for a few years, their albums together are great. I have both of them, but, uh, it bothered me then that he, w- he was finally able to get song to the siren for lost highway after like kind of proving himself as an artist, maybe, but after not wanting to license any of their music song to the siren was licensed for the trailer to the Texas chainsaw massacre remake, <laughs> which <laughs> angered me for some reason when I saw that at the theater and as the music started up. I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> You wouldn't do it for Lynch, but for this. Yeah. I'm not saying anything bad about that because I'm a big horror fan. I'm just saying, like, you're not going to do it for Lynch, but you'll do it for this Michael Bay remake of a classic horror film, as as commercial as you can be. I can understand that. Uh, So, did you have anything more you wanted to say Um, about Blue Velvet?
1: Just, uh, I. uh, I don't know that I have anything concrete to say, but I, I can never talk enough about Dean Stockwell's performance. So like I find, I feel like I find he- myself mimicking it physically because I'm so fascinated by it. It's so strange. Like I, I try to like, the, the way he opens his eyes and the way he moves his mouth, it's even for a Lynch film, it's especially bizarre. And I love it so much. Like it's it's one of the most magnetic performances I've ever seen.
0: It's so great, and I love how enamored uh, Dennis Hopper is, Frank, that character, that he's basically just so fucking suave, like, he's so impressed by Ben, Dean Stockwell in this, and Dean Stockwell is going, is going, doing this so great, like, I love the scene, I love his performance, like, he looks up to him so much, like, he, he, it's great, it's so good.
1: I know, I think uh, part of it to me is I think Ben does not fear Frank one iota and Frank responds to that. He, th- he sees someone who doesn't fear him at all and he thinks this, this man has it. This man has power. He's, that is a suave motherfucker if he's not afraid of me.
0: Yeah. Uh, sorry. <laughs> it, it, okay. Well, I think that's going to do it for, for Blue Velvet. Another movie I feel like I could talk a lot more about, but um, maybe this is a good time to end it. So we're going to take a quick break We're gonna come right back. We're gonna talk about our top fives of the week. All right, so we're back. Here we are, we're gonna do our top fives and our top fives are just noir, uh, which which can be a little bit nebulous. Like it's a genre that it's kind of hard to define when you get really down into it and try and get into particulars, but noir. They could be old, new, whatever. Um, I stayed pretty classic with mine and I just kind of went with five that I really like and I, I go back to. Uh, these aren't the best, Other, maybe maybe they're not the best. Other people will probably have different lists, uh, but here's mine. So, so my first pick for the, my top fives this time is cornered with Dick Powell. Uh, he's hunting down the Nazis who he holds responsible for his wife's death Um, He also, Dick Powell gets a pretty traumatic brain injury. And so his his cognitive abilities kind of come and go. He's not the most reliable narrator or the most trustworthy person to be making some pretty serious life and death decisions, which leads to kind of a really fun, I mean fun relatively speaking, like uneasiness to the film that is very enjoyable. And there's a scene at the end where he corners some of these Nazi sympathizers and Nazis that he, I don't want to spoil it too much, I don't, whatever, And it, this isn't a spoiler. Again. He <laughs> beats somebody to death and it is incredibly brutal because he just kind of goes into a fugue while he's doing it. And it, it's such a shocking scene from 1945 that I've seen it a few times and every time I am just like, they are keeping this scene going for a lot longer than I would expect. <laughs> Uh, So that's my number one. Well, not that I'm ranking these. What do you got? What do you got first? Uh,
1: My first one, let me see. I'm just going chronologically on these. Uh, My first one is Out of the Past um, from 1947, directed by Jacques Tourneur um, and starring Robert Mitchum and Jane Greer as an amazing femme fatale. Um, I'm a big Robert Mitchum fan um, and he was amazing at film noir. This is um, probably the most classic noir of my choices. Uh, It's again, it's really, you know, Dark and nihilistic, um, really, you know, mean and nasty, and just really beautiful. Um, but yeah, it's probably of like the accepted classics of film noir. This is probably my favorite one.
0: It's so good. It's great. And Jacques Tourneur, I mean, such a great director that I think I think he's he's well respected. People know he's a great director. I think he's missing from a lot of discussion on on you know kind of classic films like he because he's he's done some incredible work
1: yeah yeah somebody was asking me the other day like my favorite all-time film directors and i gave them three or four and tourner was on my list um just because he's directed so many of my favorites even um if it's not a huge list that i love them so much and this is one of them especially i like um people who Cross genres in sometimes surprising ways. Obviously, his style um, uh, it was very heavily in noir, even if he was working in horror, just because of the way he used shadows and the way he used darkness. Um, but yeah, he's he's definitely a favorite director of mine.
0: Uh, okay, so my next one I'm going to go with is Kiss Me Deadly, which uh, it's in the Criterion cri- co- sorry Criterion Collection. I think it's probably an established. Uh, classic in the genre right now Um, I hadn't seen it before the Criterion release it was it was a blind buy for me man such a a, another great kind of brutal film like the the main character is so unlikable especially by modern standards like he's played kind of like he's a psychopath in his own right or sociopath at the very least Um, the the plot itself it has one of the great all-time great MacGuffins, inspiring stuff like, you know, you can see how it would have inspired uh, Repo Man or Pulp Fiction, just the, the box. Mm-hmm. that The glowing we... briefcase, yeah. <laughs> oh god, it's so good, and then that ending is is almost apocalyptic. Oh. There's like, I was reading, you, you read some essays on it where it's like that accidental editing, like they made a mistake in editing, and it's just like, it, it kind of flows really weird. That entire final act, in, it led to the french new wave in a way <laughs> like it, it was so inspiring to these these, these uh these critic turned filmmakers overseas that were looking mm-hmm. at american films in ways that just people over here weren't like they would people over here would see a failure or a mistake and it would inspire genres overseas right.
1: exactly <laughs> and um, it's kinda... such a
0: it's such a great little film
1: I I adore that movie. That was actually on my list. So I'm picking an alternate, but
0: <laughs> oh, I'm glad you made alternates. I, I I don't, I don't always remind people they can do that.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I, I had a few um, and that was definitely on the list, but I, I kind of had a suspicion that you would pick that one. I don't know if we had talked about that one. I think maybe we discussed that when we were talking about movies to choose. Um, so I thought um oh, we might double up on that. So I'll pick another one. But I, I love that movie. It's got a killer opening and a killer ending. It's so good
0: yeah Robert Aldrich, um, like he uh, he knocked it out of the park a few times
1: mm-hmm. okay um well I'm going back in time for my alternate um but I'm going to go with the seventh victim from 1943 which is it's a horror movie but it's also film noir um I, I just rewatched this for an essay I'm should have written a while ago on it we won't talk about that anyway um, <laughs> but it's it's so good it's so nihilistic it's um uh directed by mark robson it Jean gene brooks and kim hunter in her first film role i believe um and it, this was one of the films produced by val luton for rko um you know talking about you know knocking you out of the park um val Luton as a producer but it's uh it's kind of a missing person story meets a tale of a Satanist cult in Greenwich village. Um, And it's so dark and so beautiful. I I'm obsessed with this movie and um, yeah, I don't know how long they'll have it on shutter, but it's on shutter right now because they've got a a Val Luton collection right now. Um, And I highly recommend all of those films, but yeah, the seventh victim is definitely a noir film favorite of mine.
0: That's great. I didn't even think about that. But uh, I love all of those, uh, the Val Luton movies. I have that, I have the DVD set of them all. Yeah, me too. (laughs) This this is my favorite of the set. And it's, you know, Jacques Tourneur, somebody who worked famously, Mm -hmm. like most famously maybe with Val Luton. Mm -hmm. Um, This movie, like like Seventh Victim kind of feels a little bit like a Jacques Tourneur Tourneur film. It does. It does feel a little bit like Night of the Demon. Uh, but yeah, Seventh victim is is terrific. That's that's one I wholeheartedly endorse. <laughs>
1: uh
0: so my next one, um I'm not going in chronologically. I'm I'm pretty much going in the order I thought of them as I wrote them down. <laughs> uh I'm going with Nightmare Alley, uh with Tyrone Power. Basically, it, it's a, about this kind of huckster who he, kind of rises through the world he becomes pretty famous he starts as a carny um and he's in it he he gets a pretty famous show as a clairvoyant where he guesses what people have in their bag or whatever and you know becomes rich and and it's it's a pretty like looking at at the specifics it's kind of not the specifics looking at the outline it's pretty much a rise and fall storyline but man this movie gets dark like the character is unlikable and scheming nonstop and uh, just doing whatever it needs he needs to to get ahead a little bit more and the the depths to which he falls are very deep like this is a a really good movie uh, Guillermo del Toro is making a remake it's supposed to come out sometime this year Um, I cannot wait like as much as like you you love a movie and you don't want them to remake it I think if anybody can del toro is probably going to be able to to handle it
1: yeah yeah for sure all
0: right so what, what's what you got
1: uh, my next one is speaking of french new wave my next choice is alphaville um directed by jean-luc godard um it stars eddie constantine and one of the true loves of my life anna karina um it's um another a lot of the ones that i've chosen are kind of a mesh of genres this is kind of a dystopian sci-fi meets film noir um eddie constantine is lemmy caution a secret agent who faces off against um this you know futuristic technocratic regime it's very mysterious very minimalistic and just you know like any Godard film is very stylish and very intriguing um it's not your typical film noir, but it's one that I really love. It's uh, one that I saw quite early on and I've been obsessed with. I think, I, I believe this is also in the Criterion collection because I can picture the Criterion disc on my shelf right yeah, now. Yeah,
0: it is. And yeah. I, sadly, I have not seen this one. I,
1: I really recommend it. I know it won't be to everyone's taste, but it's one that I really love. Um, so maybe... Uh, it's been a while since I've seen it but as I recall go in with some patience and I think you will be rewarded very well for it
0: oh I'm sure I'll love it I, I mean it seems right up my alley I just I I haven't gotten around to it yeah, the, for a reason.
1: You, there are so many films I need to say it's impossible to see everything
0: I know and there's more every day <laughs> <laughs> um, okay so my next one uh, is Gun Crazy which it, it, it like the metaphor of this, the, 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 the fever for guns, the title of his gun crazy and the characters in it are certainly crazy about guns. Like it's, it's such a, like, it's a movie about obsession and uh, like, it's kind of like diverted sexual obsession almost like it is almost a sexual obsession, but the, the movie is making it about a gun. And we all know, what that can represent as well <laughs> from a Freudian sense um, it, it it's it's not an epic, it's another one that kind of at times feels a little bit uh, a little bit cheap, which just kind of adds to it not not certainly in the way that detour does, but um no i i I really like this one. this one is a little disturbing. Um, I, I don't know what to say about it. I just, I like this a lot. <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right. Um, I've got my next two. I I try to stay away from the typical, you know, double indemnity and the things that y- you always hear about when people recommend uh, noir films. Uh, my next one is the long goodbye uh, directed by Robert Altman. So we're getting into neo noir now um, and stars Elliot Gould as Philip Marlowe. Um, I... I, I don't think this was my first Altman film, but it was one that made me rethink uh, noir films because I was used to the, you know, the 40s, black and white, the, what you typically think of when you think of noir. I think um, perhaps Chinatown was my first, but maybe this was my first kind of neo-noir film where it was kind of a sun-drenched California setting instead of the, you know, black and white New York City. And, you know there was more of a an emphasis on, on ennui and um this kind of um sense of isolation alienation in addition to the typical noir tropes um and i just i love it i this was this movie in nashville are the two movies that really made me fall in love with robert altman and this movie really made me fall in love with elliot gold and i i just i love this film so much
0: yeah um well i haven't seen this one in a little while but i i really like this one as well there's a great choice Uh, i i stuck with classic with online i thought about neo-noir but i i i just decided to keep with classic so i'm glad you're delving into that territory but my final pick um is a movie that we almost did i it it was kind of the first to come in my come to mind when you suggested detour actually uh is where danger lives with robert mitchum Mm. it 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 is kind of like detour. It is a noir road movie where they're traveling across the country. It is a movie where somebody gets kind of sidetracked with the wrong woman. Like, like they have the right woman. Like he has, he has a girlfriend who for whatever reason, because I think he, because he feels responsible for this woman whose life he saves, he's a doctor, by the way. Um, he blows off dates with his girlfriend and starts seeing this woman who was a patient and, um, there is also an accidental death that, that he is on the run from, which forms the basis of the plot. Uh, year, a couple of years ago, and I've, I've been thinking about returning to it every once in a while, I was thinking about writing an essay about body horror in film noir in, mm-hmm. the, in that, so a lot of film noir, um, enough to call it a little mini trend, maybe not a lot of film noir, but uh, deal with characters who are impaired in some way. And usually that is mental. Um, like the other one I mentioned earlier, Cornered, where Dick Powell has a brain injury, which makes it hard for him to think clearly all the time. There are a lot of movies where, you know, the person is getting hit on the head a lot or they, they're dealing with the effects of a concussion like um, uh, Robert Mitchum is dealing with the effects of a severe concussion for most much of this movie. Um, I, I, I really wanted to explore that, like noir as body horror. And this movie has some really great framing like these shots that just say so much about the characters with simple ways that they are separated or brought together on screen. Um, I don't. I, I don't know if I've ever heard much. Pe- many people talk about it, but I, I discovered it on TCM like six years ago or so, and it really just like I fell in love with this movie. Cool.
1: Well, yeah, I, that's one I've not seen, so that's going on the list as well.
0: I, I highly recommend it. It's got Claude Rains in it as well. And the Femme Ooh. Fatale is uh I, I don't know if I've seen her in anything else. Faith Demurg Demurg Demurge. Hmm. I don't know how to say it. Uh, yeah. to it. Oh no, she was in This Island Earth. <laughs> okay. <No. laughs> so I've seen her in a couple of things.
1: Gotcha. Um, all right. Um, my last one is Bad Influence. Um, this is one I don't see a lot of people talking about. It's been a while since I've seen it, but I remember really, really liking it. Um, it's from 1990, directed by Curtis Hansen, um, and stars Rob Lowe and James Spader and Christian Clemonson, um, who I really like as a performer, and I think did a terrific job in this movie. Um, and basically, uh, James Spader runs into Rob Lowe, and Rob Lowe is a bad influence on him and starts to, you know, lead his life down increasingly... Um, frightening and strange paths um, uh, and it's just it's a really it's really disturbing I think it's got some really good performances from all three leads and like I said it's not one that I see talked about a lot and I have fond memories of it so I, I just wanted to put that in people's ear to go check it out because um, you know obviously Curtis Sanson directed LA Confidential so he knows his way around neo-noir um, but I, I would really recommend this one
0: that yeah i've never seen that and all i know is the cover for it or the poster which has james spader so awkwardly holding that woman to him (laughs) like yeah it does not look natural at all for some reason but i i've just never never watched it but um curtis hansen i like and i will definitely put this on my my watch list wherever it's available right now i I will keep that, that to heart and check it out
1: well, good. I and like I said, it's been a while since I watched it. If you hate it, just blame it on my hazy memory. But I remember being really impressed with it. <laughs> As a if you know, I hate I'm, it, this,
0: this episode will never see the light of day.
1: <laughs> excellent, excellent, good. That's that might be a good thing. I might have you know been talking nonsense the whole time. So <laughs> oh,
0: no, no. I, I this was great. I really enjoyed our discussion about in both movies. You had some really great insights that I hadn't actually thought of, like the the way of interpreting them so it was really fun to kind of like i kind of came into this with a couple of notes but it was really fun to pick apart and discover things about these movies as we were talking so i really enjoyed this this was a lot of fun
1: oh excellent i did too thank you so much i did too
0: so um that's going to do it for us before we go do you have any anything that you you have to promote right now do you want to send anybody towards uh your socials or any of your writings in particular
1: Oh, yeah. Um, I've got everything centered on my Twitter page. It's at we who walk here. Um I've got a list, uh, a link to my portfolio. I, um, like you mentioned at the top of the show, I, I have a weekly, or excuse me, a, a comics column for Daily Grindhouse. I work uh, with Film Cred and Nightmarish Conjurings and Goals Magazine. Um, I've got some more articles coming up. Um, and yeah, just come say hi to me at WeWhoWalkHere. And if you like the movies I recommended. Let me know if you didn't like them. Don't tell me.
0: <laughs> uh, that, that's a dangerous thing to get pe- to ask people to tell you what they think on Twitter.
1: <laughs> it's true. I I um I'm sure it'll be over by the time this episode airs. I've been taking a step back from Twitter just for my own mental health. Um, but like I said, I'm sure that will be over soon because I can't quite quit Twitter. So at We Who Walk Here, come say hi to me.
0: Yeah, everybody should give you a follow. I mean, I'm not sure if you're looking for followers, but you're you, like I'm glad to follow you. What am I trying to say? Everybody should check out your writings. (laughs) Um, As for me, thank you.
1: no, yeah, I would love if people would come follow me and say hi.
0: (laughs) Okay, good, good. Uh, As for me, I'm also on Twitter, you can find me at on Twitter and Instagram, actually at two headed pod. There's a Facebook page that I have been kind of neglecting. I need to get back into that probably well this week. Um, I'm a little bit most active on Twitter, I think. So yeah, uh, give us a follow if you're listening and enjoying it please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. And I have not done this in a little while, but uh, I do want to remind people I have a partnership with Metallic Dice Games. So if you go to metallicdicegames.com, you look over what they've got. They've got a lot of gaming-related, you know, dice and gaming material. Um, There are some really cool pins my partner Amber designed. You can find them there. I put links up on Twitter before. But if you go there and you find anything you want, enter the code 2HEADS at checkout and that'll get you 10% off your order. Uh, other than that, we will be talking to you next week with a new, movie, new pair of movies and a new guest host body. So everybody take care.